Hey everyone, welcome back to Dreams and Screams. We're your hosts, as always, Tammy. And this is Ashley. And we're up to episode eight. That is just wild. It's crazy. We're going to lose track at some point, but for now we're counting. And as everyone knows, we're doing our little spooky season special, if you will. And Ashley has got a story for us this week, so go for it, Ash. I'm going to do the story of the pixie stick killer. Pixie sticks killer. We've all heard of the urban legends, the myths about Halloween candy being laced or swapped for drugs, namely ecstasy, poisoned, broken glass, and there's also myths of razor blades hidden inside apples. Um, You'd have to go home, check your candy, of course, piece by piece with your parents to ensure that nothing was out of the norm. Any packaging that looks suspicious, right to the trash. Maybe perhaps you also take the time to sort your treasures. I know I did. I was like, don't like this. And there was a joke that I read in a couple posts. Uh, That's where the parents took their parent tax. You know, I, I took you out. I get to take these ones. Yeah. So perhaps this is just a way for parents to sneak home some of the loot for themselves or could this truly be based out of fear and a reality we know people are sick so maybe this did happen what i'm about to tell you is the story of the pixie stick killer the candy man as he was also known or as he was also called the man who ruined halloween so this is a story of ronald clark o'brien He was born in 1944, and he lived in Deer Park, Texas with his wife. I think you pronounce it Daneen, but I apologize if that's not how it is pronounced. And there are two children, Timothy, who was age eight, and daughter Elizabeth, who was age five. He worked as an optician at Texas State Optical, and he was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church. At the church, he was also involved in the choir and supposedly ran their local bus program. I couldn't quite find anything about what the wife does for a living, but I don't think that makes a difference in the story. So on October 31st, 1974, it was a cold, damp, and rainy Halloween night in Pasadena, Texas. O'Brien had dinner with his friend James Bates and his wife, Jean Bates, and all of their kids. After a nice meal, the men took the children, O'Brien's two kids, and Bates's son, trick-or-treating in the swanky Pasadena neighborhood that the Bates lived in. Again, the O'Brien family lived in Deer Park. The wives stayed home to pass out candy to the trick-or-treaters, and they wished them a fun time. So going from house to house, collecting their goodies along the way, they came to a dimly lit house. Nobody answers, which not uncommon. My parents actually go out to dinner every Halloween because they're like, we've done that for years. So no one answers. They decide to continue on their way. Perhaps nobody's home. It was rainy, and the kids wanted more candy so of course they run off in the direction of the next house. Jim heads after them. For some reason O'Brien hangs back and kind of drifts off from the group as they run on to the next house. Shortly after that he comes jogging back to them waving some candy in his hands. Five 21 or 22 inch long pixie sticks. Those giant guys. Obviously I'm assuming everybody knows what a pixie stick is but if you don't it's basically just flavored sugar in a tube. Yeah I don't know if you've had pixie sticks as an adult but they're nasty. No. I used to love them though. Here's the thing. Actually, anything that I've tried recently from childhood, candy um, or like snack, like I went back and my mom, she always tries to find these things. My mom's love language is like gift giving. So she found Dunkaroos, which absolutely vile. They do not taste like how they used to. The cracker was different. The frosting was different. It was bad. The girls at my uh, job also tried it and they were like, no, what's wrong with this? And then she found Warheads. Oh, disgusting. But I was like, you know, we used to do the game where you'd like try to put as many in your mouth as you could. I put one in my mouth and I was like, 
absolutely no so mike is it just growing up and your taste evolves and changes or are the recipes different or were they always gross but as kids honestly they were probably always gross we were just kids and candy is just candy i guess you know as kids we're like sugar okay anyway back to the story so yeah surefire way to get a bunch of five to eight year olds bouncing off the walls like give them a pixie stick especially a giant one he excitedly tells the kids um and james that he stumbled upon some rich neighbors and they were handing out the expensive stuff hell yeah that's a fucking dream on a halloween night exactly if you grew up trick-or-treating obviously you know those houses you had them the ones giving out the full-size candy they were always like the jackpot on like the route and you'd always hope like at least i'm gonna get one full-size candy bar like come on i'm trying to like think like what did i like what was my favorite yeah i can't remember my favorites either i think i was just always so happy to just have candy but it's funny because i would always want to fill were you a a pillowcase person or were you actual like bucket no usually just a pillowcase same i feel like at some point we maybe had like a reusable tote situation but we were pillowcase kids (laughs) but i would always fill it up and then i would i think i would eat for like maybe a week right you'd have a piece here have a piece there and then the pillowcase would like hang like i would somehow fashion where it was like hanging on my door somehow or on a chair and then it would just be like a sack full of candy for the next six months that's because it's like an obscene amount of candy but like even i got over it you know i was like Mm, I'm good. So O'Brien gave a giant pixie stick to each of the three kids. Um, He later happily gave the fourth to Bates's daughter, who supposedly stayed home, I guess, when it had kind of been like a drizzly night. She decided she didn't want to join. She wanted to stay home with the mom. And then a fifth and final pixie stick to a 10, 11-year-old boy that they passed while they were trick-or-treating. And this boy supposedly went to the church. So he recognized O'Brien as the deacon and he gave him the fifth pixie stick. Before they knew it, the fun night had come to a close and it was time to mosey on home. They got ready for bed and O'Brien agreed that each kid could have one piece of candy to close out the night. Most parents would do that. You can have one more piece. Call it a night. Lure them into bed. Elizabeth chose a candy she had apparently had her eye on and Timothy, of course, chose the pixie stick. And in fact, his father encouraged it. Yeah eat that one timothy ripped open the candy and it was kind of in a like a clump together kind of hard in the tube so he asked his dad for help o'brien kind of rolls it between his hands to help break up the sugar and loosen the powder he hands it back to timothy and timothy pours it right down his mouth after tasting a big gulp of the sugar he stops and makes a point to his dad that this sweet usually sometimes even sourish powder has a really awful bitter taste his dad suggests well sip some kool-aid wash it down it's okay shortly after his nighttime sweet treat Timothy was up and apparently complaining of a stomach ache and really painful cramps. He begins violently vomiting and convulsing. A quote from O'Brien, I was holding him and he just went limp. They rushed Timothy to the hospital, but sadly he had passed by the time they had got there. This was just one hour after eating the pixie stick. We would later find out that the pixie stick was laced with potassium cyanide. One of the investigators apparently called the chief medical examiner in a nearby county and asked him to smell the young boy's breath. A quick call to the morgue revealed a scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth. Immediately, the examiner said it was cyanide. A different investigator had said there was enough poison to kill a herd of elephants. That was a tad bit of a stretch. But I think from what I read, there was enough to kill multiple grown men. At least two grown men. With that much in his system, in only 30 minutes, the poison in his body was already taking over, essentially suffocating his brain and his heart, taking the oxygen from his cells. This poor little boy, he had no chance of survival, according to the records. The Pasadena police and detectives began looking into the case. Where did this candy come from? What's the motive? 
behind killing innocent children with poison candy. People in the area, after having heard this tragic news, were scared to death, of course. There was an uproar, as some articles called it. Police even put out word, if if you see any suspicious candy, bring it in to the police station. Apparently, they collected a room full of candy, but I don't think they found anything suspicious. When questioned, O'Brien had little help he could offer, only stating that they had only gone to two streets, it was raining, he couldn't remember the house or the man slash person, just a, quote, hairy arm reaching out with the candy. Police weren't buying that. Like, you, yeah, yeah, that sounds shady. Out of nowhere, though, it seemed O'Brien now remembered things when they brought him back in a second time for questioning. It said they pressed him harder this time. So now all of a sudden he remembered some details. The home that he pointed out belonged to Courtney Melvin. Melvin was initially arrested and questioned, but with over 200 witnesses to back up his alibi, he was cleared. He was an air traffic controller for an airport in Houston, and he was actually working that night. The lights on the dimly lit house were that way because his wife and daughter actually ran out of candy, as you do, and And they decided to call it a night and lower the lights, turn off the porch light. Let's call it, let's go to bed. So the gaze of the detectives quickly turns back to O'Brien, but they needed to dig deeper. They needed to look past his account of the night and really look into what was going on. They do also become more suspicious of him because of his lack of emotion um, in the whole thing, which I feel like every time we do a new story, it's like, that's obviously the thing with these fucking murderers. Not only did they discover that he had been fired from a whopping 21 jobs over 10 years. Like you guys heard that correctly, 21 in 10 years. He also had huge financial issues, including $100,000 in debt. At the time, I mean, okay, I want to pause for a second because just a sidebar. Because yes, 100K is a lot of debt. In this day and age, and as somebody speaking with like student loan debt, I'm like, that's 100K is not unheard of. But keep in mind, this is 1974. So in 1974, if we're doing today's math, according to an inflation calculator. Yeah, what's that in today's money? $642,418. Yeah, he was in a shit ton of debt. His car was in the process of being repossessed. He had defaulted on several bank loans. And allegedly, the home was even in foreclosure. Oh, wow. Did his wife know this? I'll I'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah. The possibility that money could have been the motive for Timothy's murder became pretty clear. After the police detectives continued to find more of these details, they also even uncovered that O'Brien was actually taking classes at a community college where he was allegedly asking his professors questions like, this is a quote, what is more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison? Wow. That's real sly of him. Yeah. Also, I don't know what kind of class. Was it, you know, a science class? If you're taking an English class, that's really strange, you know? His interest in poison also expand into other aspects of his life. He apparently asked an acquaintance how much cyanide it would take to kill a person. And then he went and asked a clerk at a Houston area chemical company about purchasing cyanide, but ultimately left when he found out he had to buy it in like five pound bulk. This guy, he's a real thinker. He's literally like, hello, everyone. Yeah, I really am interested in poison. But it wasn't me. The same poison that my son died from, I'm asking about. The clerk remembers the outfit of the man. He didn't remember the man, like his face, but he did remember his outfit. He said he had somewhat of a blue smock, something like a doctor. And if you remember, he was an optician. So 
just to keep adding to this wild laundry list of things that this man did, he had taken out life insurance policies totaling $60,000 on his son and daughter. His wife, when she was questioned if she knew, she remembers him taking out a life insurance policy of around $10,000. And she questioned him even on that. Like, why is this something we need? He manipulated her. We have to do this. This is a smart thing to do. Yeah, it's always so weird to me with life insurance. Obviously, it serves a purpose, and I know people who have gotten life insurance payouts, and it obviously helps the families get through a really hard time, but it's so odd when they take out life insurance on children. Right, and I think that was her point, is like, I don't understand why, out of all the things that we need to do, why is that the thing we're doing? Right, because obviously, I'm not a parent, but... I would imagine as a parent, you only expect your children to outlive you, not the other way around. Yeah, if anything, you're trying to prepare things so that when you pass, they're taken care of. Later that same year is when he takes out the additional policy totaling the 60k. Again, according to the good old inflation calculator, 60k in 1974 would roughly be $373,000. So that would be a big chunk of of what he owed. Yeah. The police also found out that he'd actually called his insurers to ask about the payout at 9 a.m. the morning after his son's death. Ugh, what the fuck? So they went trick-or-treating. This was at night. You know, you don't go trick-or-treating midday. You go trick-or-treating at night. He passes away late at night and he calls the next morning at 9 a.m. So he is eager to get that money. Mm-hmm. Yep. This makes everything come clearer. The case against him is pretty cut and dry. After getting a warrant, investigators also searched the O'Brien house and found scissors with a plastic residue that matches the cyanide laced pixie stick. Obviously, this is years ahead of in-depth DNA testing and electronic payment tracking methods. Like he probably went to the local candy store, paid $2.00 for the pixie six you know they can't track any of that so this was this surely helped in connecting it even more a physical piece of evidence november 5th 1974 just five days after the murder of his son he is finally arrested kills his own son for money but he never confesses his wife insists she knew nothing and was totally unaware of her husband's plans again didn't know about the insurance thing didn't really understand his point of view on it i think if we're looking back to those times too her husband's telling her it's the decision he's the man of the house you kind of take his word for things and okay or maybe you're like maybe i don't understand what you're saying okay sure (laughs) you know o'brien never sheds a tear allegedly he goes to trial in may of 1975 and his wife ends up testifying against him the circumstantial evidence is piled through the roof on june 3rd 1975 after only 46 minutes the jurors unanimously agreed and found o'brien guilty on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder he was sentenced to death by electric chair in the years following o'brien would exhaust the appeals process I did see an image of a letter. It was chicken scratch. So from what I made from it, he also claimed to want to extend the process to find truth in his son's death. He just didn't want to die. He received three stays of execution. His third execution date was scheduled, in fact, for October 31st, 1982, which would have been the eight-year anniversary of his son Timothy's tragic passing. Sidebar on this, I read that In that specific ruling, Judge Michael McSpadden allegedly offered to personally drive O'Brien to the death chamber. Oh, wow. He was not playing around. 
Finally, on his fourth and final execution date, March 31st, 1984, another stay of execution would not be granted. In 1977, Texas adopted lethal injection as the execution method, so he was spared from the electric chair, which was his initial death sentence, as I mentioned. So almost 10 years after his son's murder, O'Brien, now 39. Holy shit, he was so young when this happened. Had his last meal, apparently a steak, fries, peas, and a Boston cream pie. Oh, wow. That's random. Wait. Steak? Fries. Peas. Peas. I mean, I guess it was the 70s. Yeah. A well-rounded meal. You have a meat, a starch, and a veg. What would your last meal be? Oh, God. I mean, I love a good steak. I love a good lobster. Oh, would you have a lobster roll? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take the New England girl. No, for sure. I actually might. I'd be like, I want a main lobster roll, fries, and some tartar sauce. I feel like I would probably do steak because I love steak, but it would have to be like a nice cut, rare, medium rare steak with some like chimichurri and mashed potatoes for sure. Okay. This is a hard question for sure. I mean... At that point, fuck the vegetables. I'm not doing vegetables. I mean, a potato's a vegetable. Well, but the potato, it's its own thing. Yeah, yeah, the potato, anyways. The potato goes a long way. Yeah, any form. Fries, tots, mashed. Vodka. True. (laughs) There she goes. Um, But yeah. Anyway, I digress. So, I I don't know, guys. Send us what your, um, what would your last meal be? What could you just not leave this earth and not have one last time? He was right on the money with getting dessert, though. Boston cream pie that was that made me laugh I haven't had a Boston cream pie like I remember growing up and having a Boston cream pie donut you know so that was his final meal followed by his execution by lethal injection and he was officially declared dead at 12 48 a.m his last words he expressed no sorrow for the premeditated murder of his son because it was premeditated he had thought through every detail and he maintained his position that he was innocent the whole time. Never took any responsibility. Good thing the daughter didn't want that candy that night. I'm going to go back and give you a little bit more color around some of those things that I didn't want to include in the main story. But okay, this is a part where it made me like, you know, throw a fist to the air. Like, heck yeah. Apparently hundreds of people, like some odd 300 people, some allegedly wearing costumes, So apparently, get this, hundreds of people, like 300 freaking people, some allegedly wearing costumes gathered outside of the Texas State Prison and were shouting, trick or treat. Oh my God, I didn't know this part. And even throwing candy at the anti-death penalty protesters. And they had posters and all that. Oh my God. Like a big, fuck you, you deserve it, you monster trick-or-treat i literally was like whoa so that's the the gist of the main story i'm like i said i'm gonna go back and give a little bit more details some statements things like that apparently o'brien never from his family's perspective and his wife's perspective apparently he was never excited over halloween before but for this year again for some reason he was really excited and he had allegedly got the kids costumes two weeks prior and was obviously just planning this that particular Halloween night. Again, it was rainy and cold. O'Brien was wearing a rain jacket and he had those pixie sticks in his jacket the whole time, of course. His plan was to concoct the story that there was a Halloween murderer targeting children and families. Apparently, he added two inches of cyanide to each pixie stick and he had stapled the 
top shut. According to the appeal document from the courts, I read a couple of them. They're always super interesting, obviously really lengthy and involved and lots of like legal jargon that I don't always understand, but sometimes they're really interesting. Police recovered all five giant pixie sticks and turned them over to that same medical examiner. The physical examination of the pixie sticks showed that one end of the candy was properly heat sealed and the other end was sealed by a staple. A representative from the company that manufactures the candy testified even that the plastic straw is always heat sealed, never stapled. So as you brought up before, O'Brien had distributed the poison candy to his son, his daughter, and three other children in an attempt to cover up his crime. So this was intentional to give it to more than just his children. Neither his daughter nor the other children ended up eating the poison candy. In fact, the other young boy, I think it was the one that they met from the church, I guess he escaped this plot by a hair actually saying that he fell asleep with the pixie stick in his hand and the only reason he didn't open it was because he wasn't strong enough to pop open the staple, which is wild, you know, when you wake up your kid and take this out of their hand and then realize like, oh my god. Yeah, he could have died. That's so insane. He got so lucky so now some statements from his wife she said he made his bed and now he has having to lie in it i have no pity for him she continues i'm glad it's coming to an end this was after his execution i don't think ronald is a sick or insane person but he is perverted i yeah i would argue that as well that he's all of those things. He's insane, he's sick, and he's perverted. And probably fill in the blanks with some more words. She apparently did get remarried. It was undisclosed, her last name. She said she wanted to wipe the slate clean. She wanted a new beginning. She obviously had a void from her son's death, but she did worry about her daughter, especially going through the execution. But her daughter, I guess, I think she was around 15 when her father was executed. She accepts that he intended to kill her as well that night. They do not refer to him as her dad, rather her his first name or her biological father. And she's had no contact. She had no contact with him. Cut and dry. Not in our lives. Daneen, again, I apologize if that's not the way you say that name, remembered once before Timothy's death that O'Brien quoted a Bible story about how Abraham must have felt about losing his losing and sacrificing his only son. And she says, I just started putting all those things together. He was my husband and I wanted to believe him. But knowing him and living with him for almost 10 years, I knew it was possible. Oh, wow. That says a lot. I wonder what she really meant by that. Like, did other things start? Did she start remembering, like, weird other things? Yeah, what else did he do or what else did he say that made her think he would be capable of that? Well, and I don't, again, I couldn't find much about her, but I'm like, if she was aware of the dead and, you know, his losing his jobs, like, but trusted him enough, I guess, that when he said certain things, I don't know, maybe just after the fact, she was like, wow. I had a hunch, but also he's my husband. I will say she never took a dime of any life insurance money. She coined it blood money. She didn't want anything. So his neighbor and friend, James, or Jim Bates, also made a couple statements. He said, here is a man who killed a trusting, defenseless, innocent eight-year-old kid for no reason, for dollars and cents. He was willing at random to pick some other kids that other people loved and try to kill them too. He also said that the death penalty is obviously horrible, but not as horrible as that little boy's death. Some sources think O'Brien obviously was aware of urban legends and myths and 
there were some that had cropped up in news articles like in the early 70s which again were kind of just myth of poison candy and they thought that he assumed using the cyanide lace candy would deflect the suspicion from him um, and put it onto this like quote-unquote boogeyman murderer wreaking havoc in the area O'Brien was shunned and despised by his fellow death row inmates for killing a child, his own. The inmates reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on O'Brien's execution date to express their hatred of him. The Candyman moniker he received was allegedly even given by the fellow prisoners. You know you're a real piece of shit when the other inmates in your prison hate your fucking guts. Yeah. Well, and it's like a thing, you know. You always hear like anything that has to do with children. It is important to say that this is not to be confused with, ironically, another Texas killer dubbed the Houston Candyman, Houston serial killer Dean Arnold Coral, who was also called the Candyman or the Pied Piper because his family owned a candy factory in the Houston Heights. This was between 1970 and 1973. He was accused of of killing approximately 38 victims, all males aged 13 to 20. So that might be something I deep dive into. It sounded, you know, interesting, but just wanted to call that out. So there's no confusion. It's not the same story. To close it out, to close it out in Texas, the police said um, at the time the holiday was forever tainted. So truly that urban legend was in fact carried out by this motherfucker. I wanted to see if this is something that still remains an urban legend or if should parents still be fearful of this? Is it just necessary parental like precaution? So probably yeah, check your candy. I mean... If nothing else, maybe you find a moldy piece. Remember that one time I like thought about this. I'm like, remember that time we ate that chocolate and you were like, oh my God, it had mold. I ate fucking mold. She was like, I smell mold. Does your smell weird? And I was like, I don't think so. But I wasn't like scarfing it down, but I like took a bite. She's like, something smells moldy. Yeah. And then I took another bite and that's when I saw the mold. It was right there. I ate mold. Full mold. mold. Green. It was so funny. Because I was like, I didn't smell it. Um, But yeah, so I don't know. Maybe worst case, you find a moldy piece. There's always the key piece that was shoved on the bottom of the pillowcase that breaks open. So throw away the bad pieces. Keep the rest. It can't hurt. So anyway, last bit. In 2000, a man in Minneapolis was charged with putting needles, apparently, in Snickers bars that he handed out. But only one victim, allegedly a teenager who got a slight prick from the hidden sharp object. But since Timothy O'Brien's death, there has not been a single case where a child has actually died from consuming contaminated candy. But yeah, so that's my spooky or Halloween segment story. I'm going to cite a couple sources, an article by Michelle Freeman on crimewire.com, investigationdiscovery.com, an article by Aaron Rasmussen, Michael Sigalov, Sigalov, sorry if I said that wrong, for vice.com, an article by Allison Medley, Barbara Kennedy, and an article actually interviewing the wife, some Texas state court appeal documents, O'Brien versus the state, as I mentioned, NY Times article, and as Tammy always says, good old Wikipedia. So that's it. We'll be back next week with some more, you know, spooky content for you. Yes, we have some more spooky content for you. And as always, feel free to leave a comment on Instagram at Dreams and Screams Pod, or you can send us a message at Dreams and Screams Pod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for everybody who's been following us so far and has been, you know, supporting us in this little dream of ours. Yeah, yeah thanks for joining us. 
and for listening and bye for now yeah see ya bye